Welcome to Unsolicited Bridge Picks. I am your host, Charles Winkleman. And I'm Brie Bells. Today, uh, we're doing a little bit mixing of Vermont history with a look at Vermont's freshest political face to really show how neoliberalism and imperialism have beaten back Vermont left radicalism since uh, the 70s. And for better or worse, Molly Gray seems to be that latest iteration of this decades-long struggle. Okay, I'd like to say off the bat that Vermont is small, and I have some connections to Molly's extended family. I love them, especially her mom. What a gem. And I have a huge amount of respect for them. I remember meeting Molly when we were teens. She's four or five years older than I am, and we met at one of her family members' pools. She seemed impossibly cool to me. Much of what we try to do at Unsolicited Bridge Picks is to put things in context. And part of doing that is acknowledging that we often hold distinct images, truths and loves of the same person or thing. And in those synchronous perceptions, we find conflict and dissonance and pain, especially as we try to reconcile their incongruities. Like I'm funny and an asshole. <laughs> I know, like Charles. <laughs> With that disclaimer. This episode is to put Molly's rise to lieutenant governor, along with her philosophy and her experience, in context. And this can be challenging because she is simultaneously hyper-local with her strong roots in the 802 and hyper-global with her experience and passions taking her all over the world. Yeah, and, and there's definitely this uh, brand of Vermonter where they grow up here and then they move away and they get all of yeah. these world-class experiences that you can never get if you choose to stay here and go to college here and graduate and stick I, around. Wait a second. Who are you talking about? <laughs> no one in particular. Gone for only eight not years. You, not you either. I'm just saying. Four of them abroad. <laughs> you know, you, you get all these great experiences and then return. <laughs> Our guest today had a uh, amazing Twitter thread about this and I think really set off our research about Molly Gray and, and yeah, you should check out their Twitter feed. Uh, his username is pitfiend, uh, at BTV Normal. And we're hoping to talk about kind of his theory and uh, flesh out s some of that with him today. So welcome, Pitfiend. Thanks for having me. You have made a point of contextualizing Molly using the pithy phrase, Molly Gray CIA. So, what the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> well, you know, one way to look at it is that Molly kind of looks like she was in the CIA. Um, <laughs> but really, it kind of just speaks to a brand of politician that you've seen nationally for decades and that is kind of rising to prominence right now in Vermont with deep ties to very, what we call establishment, national security tied, national liberal figures who might still kind of brand themselves as progressive mm -hmm. and, and and trying to exist in Vermont, which has a reputation as a as a as a left progressive kind of uh, quirky corner of the country, and then having these like deeply nationally tied political figures kind of rising to power here. Um, and Molly is probably the most glaring example of that, but certainly not the only one. No, not at all. And I think um, with Mayor Pete running I think Mayor Pete yeah, really brought absolutely. this sort of person to the national stage because, I mean, everyone joked that mm -hmm. Mayor Pete was in the CIA. He had all of these weird... Well, Mayor Pete, uh... like, was, like, actually in the CIA. <laughs> like, I don't think Molly Gray has ever gotten a paycheck from Langley, but fucking Pete has. <laughs> 
Yeah, he did spend yeah. some time in some war-torn uh, African countries on, on vacation the, there, so. The similarities are <laughs> remarkable. Like, yeah. who goes on vacation in Namibia when they're 23? <laughs> Just very briefly before we get into it more, like, what, what about her resume and her history do you feel puts her in that national... In the national establishment politics. So I became aware of Molly as a protege of former governor Madeline Coonan. That was how I first noticed her. You know, just because of the way I am, as I started to look more into her background and her history, things just started to jump out at me. A record of international service with a certain type of NGO um, that are kind of hallmarks of this type of national security aligned politician. Like the Red Cross isn't necessarily a problematic organization, but I don't really know at what moment it like crystallized for me, I guess is is. But that's part of it because really the story here is how mundane all this stuff actually is. And, and it's yeah. not until you really take not only a look at these individuals, but you start to recognize this pattern in politicians. Uh, and that's all what it is. I mean, really, this is the route for young, ambitious, politically minded people to power these days. Like these are the patronages you need to foster. Yeah. These are the skills you have to acquire. You know, this is the training ground. Yeah, the pedigree. And have you learned have you learned the language? Have you learned the, you know, the 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 bugbears? I mean Mayor Pete knows like eleven languages, right? I bet Molly knows a couple. <laughs> it's been said in history, uh people who study history, that you can see empires in decline when the frontier comes home. And I think mm. this kind of frontierization of very boring and mundane regional politicians is a deeply striking phenomenon, especially when they're running almost left adjacent. I wouldn't say Molly ever has portrayed herself as a even a progressive or certainly not a leftist, but she is quite woke. You know, um, it's these blurrings and a lot of the people around her are even more so like that. It's these blurrings of left adjacent progressive liberal stylings and actual experiences that are you know deeply tied to some brutal brutal situations mm -hmm. if i could just jump in for a minute there with the blurring of the lines of uh levels of wokeness i think that's a big part of where we see the whole feminism girl boss thing playing a part because many of these young young women who are ambitious and put themselves forth as feminists that's kind of what they fall back on in terms of being social justice focused and being you know edgy or forward thinking and kind of acting like being a feminist politician is edgy i don't, I don't know the way i look at a lot of this branding because that's what it is to me like these are political brands yeah and it's a branding that is, it, it removes liberatory politics from feminism. It reduces feminism to being a woman, being a brand, being a marketing factor. Well, and girl power. It's, but no it's power. It's like <laughs> feminism is sociopath women. Like that's what it feels like to me. <laughs> like if you are a sociopath and a woman, then you must be a feminist. Right. If you're if you're able to succeed in, in the way politics works today, which reward sociopaths and people who have huge egos and who are trying to climb you know instead of trying to change the system you just become the system and become a part of it but put on this veneer and use the right, right. language like being a nasty woman <laughs> which is like I, that's that's great like be a nasty woman but also remember that that was applied to hillary clinton who is a nasty <laughs> woman <laughs> but not in any of the, not good, in ways. the good ways sorry <laughs> one of the things I think that really brought Molly Gray to my attention was 
how many huge local politicians mm-hmm. were endorsing her. Yeah. Because it felt like she came out of nowhere. Yeah, because she was like abroad and just showed up. I mean, I'm a, I'm a political person. I, like, I, I follow politics so much more locally than 98% of people in the state. And when she came on the scene, I was like, who the hell is this yeah. person? She's got this NATSEC sort of background. Uh, there's some adjacent CIA stuff. NATSEC meaning national security. It sounds to me like the point that you're making is that Molly Gray is dangerous to Vermont because her neoliberal philosophy places capitalist imperial interests above human rights and dignity, all the while deflecting criticism, in part by weaponizing her identity as she has with Tim Ash. And of course, you're going beyond that to, to say that she's just one more. She's just one example of this trend of banality in politics. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. A lot of this is that, you know, it's actually not nearly as sinister as it sounds because of how dull it is. Right. But Which is kind of why I placed that question to you initially, which was like, you say Molly Gray CIA like it's a bad exactly. thing. Exactly. Like, why is that bad? What it feels is conspiratorial. Like, why don't you just say Molly Gray is... A politician? A, yeah. a neoliberal... <laughs> well, yeah, I think Molly does politician. have some actually very particular connections that are interesting to look at from an actual agency perspective. But you bring up a great point because, you know, Molly bursts on the scene and, you know, I've heard people call Tim Ash Machiavellian and she just ethered him, just absolutely (laughs) dusted him. You know, like the progressive wing of establishment politics in Vermont was just completely powerless against this woman. She crushed them. Uh, And that's really, when that started happening is what made me kind of go like, well, what is this? And a lot of it is having the right connections, but she's also got a very Mm -hmm. sharp kind of courtroom sensibility and uh, is very shrewd in how she uses those things, both the establishment connections and, you know, her obviously very uh, strong skills as a a politician. So I think the point we were trying to make before was why are we seeing these people come back to Vermont? It's one thing to have one person, but as we said, this is a pattern, right? And uh, I would make the assertion that along with Molly Gray being CIA, that this is actually a project. You know, we're seeing these kinds of much more establishment centrist figures moving into Vermont politics because for decades, this was a hotbed of real radicalism in the United States, in the imperial core. And I think you've seen other versions of this over the decades. And this is just the most refined version so far. Let's talk about Vermont left radicalism in in the 70s and 80s, because uh, through some research I've done, and it's only very cursory, but one of the things that I've noticed is UVM as an institution uh, has often attracted, even from the 50s, has attracted some really radical people and has actively (laughs) booted these radical people at every step of the way. So I think you'll see, and this goes back centuries, even to the 1700s, you know, Vermont is an odd little corner. It's kind of the imperial periphery. And we're not really on the way to anywhere. What do you mean we? Y'all are Flatlanders. I am an unabashed (laughs) Flatlander, but I have gone native. I've lived here for 16 years and I married a Vermont. How many generations Um, are on the ground, bitch? I don't even have two generations in the ground in this country. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go back to where you came from. I would if they'd take me. I'm not a nativist, but uh, I am anti-carpetbagger. You should live here for a while before you tell us how to live. And and Gabrielle and I, um, in the last episode with the Boves, we we hit on this a little bit that Vermont, yes, it's a small state and the population is small, but 
it's also that we're not near yeah. any major hubs. You know, to get to Montreal, you have to cross a border. It's it's separate. It's it's just such a separate. That's the way and we so want it. Vermont really is kind of its own ecosystem. It's not close enough to Hartford, to to Manchester, to Boston, to Providence. Like yeah. it's not close enough to anything. But it's also close. To I everything. I say fairly frequently that like Burlington in particular punches above its weight. It feels more like a city of say a hundred thousand when it's not even half that. And I think that's just because there's no other cent- there's no other hubs for, you know, three hours or across an international border. And I do think that, that has especially attracted some kind of radical figures to UVM, which is, I think, the point Charles was making. Yeah. In, in the 50s, uh, there was a guy named Alex Novikov, who uh, is often regarded as being one of the overlooked scientists who should have gotten a Nobel Prize. And there was an incident that was known as the Novikov Affair where he was booted out of the College of Medicine in 1953 because in the 30s he was a communist and organized with communists and he was brought in front of the uh, McCarthy Un-American House of Activities and he refused to narc and rat out any of his comrades. And so eventually they they booted him. Uh, Ironically, he ended up going to Einstein's, the, the, (laughs) the medical school named after Einstein, who was an open socialist and had got tenured and had his career there. Uh, but in 1974, when the FBI closed his file, it had over 822 pages. Like so, so the idea that Vermonters are not being watched by the FBI and that there's not clearly well, yeah, this. Yeah, and this... I think you continue that. Probably the most famous <laughs> example of this was Michael Parenti. We all love Yellow Parenti. But yeah, he was fired from UVM, and I believe he sued. Did he sue them and lose to try to get reinstated? I think there was a several professors wrapped up in a legal action in the 70s basically were kicked out of the economics department and maybe political science for being avowed leftists. A bunch of different departments. A bunch of departments, yeah. Yeah. The Vermont 7 or something like that, the Vermont 5. Part of it, too, was that the the chairman of the Vermont Board of Trustees was Kenneth Scott, who at the time was the General Motors vice president. And so, like, when Uh. you think about, like, (laughs) they would hate any sort of uh, radical of, of any background or persuasion. Yeah, Michael Parenti is definitely the most famous. He was part of Liberty Union. He he helped organize the Liberty Union Party with Bernie Sanders. And yeah. he ran for House of yeah. Rep in, in 1974. And he got actually about twice as much of the vote as Bernie did when he ran for Senate in 74. There's also Murray Bookchin, a very famous thinker whose thought has kind of undergone a renaissance lately with the Syrian civil war. The, the, the Free Java Press movement. actually had an article about it, which was surprising. And it was actually like yeah. a a decent article from them about it, which I was um, not expecting. I don't understand his ties to Vermont in terms Bookchin? of like, yeah, I just never, like, I never saw him oh. when I've heard or read about Bookchin. I've not, I've never been like, oh yeah, Vermont. He, like, he lived here and taught at Goddard and. Right. But he, he didn't ta- teach at Goddard for very long. Uh, no, they, they established the, um, uh, the Institute for Social Equality in the seventies or eighties. And then, he was involved yeah. in the Burlington Greens. That's probably his biggest actual political project. He was really involved in the Burlington Greens in the 80s, really as kind of a foil to Bernie from a more like anarchist kind of anti-entryist <laughs> position, whereas Bernie was an yeah. avowed, you know, Bernie is is a politician through and through. Yeah. And those are the other two big names most recently. And I think that you can kind of Come back to what we were talking about with Molly, because Molly's mentor, Madeline Coonan, is rather famously uh, one of Bernie's l- largest political uh, nemeses on both the state and national scene. Yeah, just 
loves shitting all over him whenever she gets a chance. Yeah, really kind of crawls out of the woodwork anytime he runs for anything to write a Bernard Bernard is a mean uh, Sexist. woman hater. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, and, and I hope we have time to hit on this a little bit, but uh, Keenan also uh, graduated from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And uh, in Vermont, and especially in Burlington, there is a very strong nexus of Harvard Kennedy School graduates. And there's no question that there's something in the water that leads them all magically to a very neoliberal way of thinking. I mean, I will say it could be worse. They could be Yale. Yeah, right. That is the real <laughs> CIA breeding ground. Uh, uh, they could be from the Chicago School of Economics. What the fuck are you guys talking about? Yeah, but they're not usually agents. They're just uh, Chicago puts out the economics. Harvard puts out the politicians and Yale puts out the agents. And, and I guess I wouldn't go so far as to say every graduate of the Harvard Kennedy School is a spook. But it doesn't help your case. And I mean, it's some real like bottom tier gumshoe shit, but just Google Kennedy School CIA. Like there are articles written about this and there are established pathways. You go to these places to meet people like this. Cunin also taught at the Harvard Kennedy School for a bit in 83. Uh, She was elected lieutenant governor in 1978 and won re-election in 1980. She served on the Democratic National Convention Platform Committee in 1988 and under Clinton from 96 to 99 served in the U.S. ambassador to Switzerland. Cunin served as the 77th governor of Vermont from 1985 until 1991. So looking at this history, the reason that we're talking about this radical leftist movement and then Cunin is there are these two threads that are developing parallel simultaneously throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s we kind of are wrapping up those two movements and putting a face on each of those because it's easy to say like oh we'll have bernie represent this current and hunan represent the other current right so while this is going on in the 70s bernie is working with yeah yeah in in the 70s they're, they're working with liberty union and then bernie kind of uh goes his own separate way but through bernie uh the progressive party eventually forms the, one, the thing I wanted to mention about Bookchin, but I forgot about earlier, was like he was the one who started the neighborhood planning right. assemblies, and he really wanted to decentralize power. He's all about uh, municipal, what's it called? Libertarian municipalism. And he ate shit doing this. Thinking about Vermont, like one of the things that we're super proud of is town meeting day being so important. He wrote a book about that. He essentially tried to radicalize town meeting. <laughs> yes, which is hilarious because you look at how the the political system actually works. And Burlington, relatively speaking, has so little power because of the charter where almost everything has to go through the state legislature for any sort of major mm. change. And so it's I like it's funny that he really tried to like hammer in this idea that Vermont is this super democratic place when it never has been. <laughs> what Pitfin talked about earlier about how Cunin will often... Uh, weaponize her identity and that's something that molly has done to deflect criticism kunin is the og of doing that <laughs> she's been doing that for 40 years Original girl boss. <laughs> and it, it started when kunin ran against bernie yes. for governor bernie had been mayor for a couple terms at that point and, and wanted to to run for higher office and in, in kunin's kunin's memoir from 1994 living a political life she talked about how at a rally most fucked up self-help book ever <laughs> Sanders declared that, quote, he would be a better feminist than I, end quote. 
According to her account, this is from a Mother Jones article in 2016 when Bernie first ran. According to her account, Sanders shouted that Cunin had, quote, done nothing for woman. And she recalled in her book, when my husband, there as my surrogate, rose to speak in my defense, he was booed by the crowd. Cunin had already come under attack from the right for her vocal support of the Equal Rights Amendment. Now she was being hammered for not being feminist enough. I mean, and that's, this is the thing. Being a feminist when it benefits you is, you know, like... Peak bougie feminism. <laughs> yeah, you don't get brownie points for that shit. I, I, I'm glad we, we brought the Coonan and Bernie thing to the forefront because I think a lot of what we're seeing now hinges on that relationship. Before those two kind of had their confrontations, it seemed like more or less establishment, what, what have you, the, the superstructure, the hegemony... Right was kind of willing to let these offshoot radical movements fester in Vermont and, and take to the ground, even including municipal, you know, a mayor, an openly socialist mayor at the height of the Cold War. But when when Coonan and Bernie really squared off is where I think you started to see that change. And I think it's largely because Bernie smashed the Burlington Democratic Party in 1981. And then almost smashed the state party. I mean, he has basically been running in their primaries and winning and refusing the endorsement for decades. Like he's just consistently humiliated and dunked on the Vermont Democrats. And and that was too much. You're, you're encroaching on the Democrats right. turf at that point. They want to capture this left flank of the electorate without having to address any actual leftist policies. And when you have someone from the left, not attacking conservatives, but attacking Democrats and winning, that's when you start to attract the kind of attention we're talking about. And a new breed of Vermont Democrat was necessary to combat the uh, pernicious socialists. And, and I think it's telling, too, that in this last lieutenant governor race, uh, Molly Gray was Cunin's protege. And Tim Ash, although he's, you know, by far the, the least left, I think, of almost any of Bernie's protege. Uh, but he was one. He, he got his start working for Bernie. And so you really see the, these two camps really head to and What head. was the difference? Why, why did Ash fail so spectacularly? <laughs> it's like an anime. <laughs> Ash, Ash failed spectacularly. Uh, I think it would connect to the, the reasons why Zuckerman failed spectacularly and, and, and Zuckerman ate shit. <laughs> well, I think it goes back to, I, we talked about it already a little bit, but progressive liberalism is powerless against woke capitalism yes, right. because there's no structural critique. Bernie, despite not being a theorist or really an ideologue, like did have a structural critique that he founded his politics on, which he was he was able to say with a straight face, you haven't done anything for women. But, you know, his protégés have strayed from that. And, and instead of critiquing capitalism directly, right. have have attempted to be just the left flank of liberalism, radical liberalism. And that is just completely outflanked by someone like Molly or some of the other, some, some of her peers. The thread yeah. I think that brings it all together is Emerge, Emerge Vermont. It's an organization that exists specifically to support women running in the Democratic Party. Terrible. Democrats. <laughs> I hate it. No one should run as a Democrat. <laughs> no one should run for, as a Democrat for Democrats. You, you start looking at the board. So the founder is, is uh, former Governor Madeline Cunin. Some of the people on the board include uh, former state reps, includes uh, former chair of the Vermont Democratic Party. It includes Sue Minter. It includes Beth Pierce, who is a very conservative, you know, politically, Beth Pierce is very conservative. There's a Cunin Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, it, it says something. Jesus you start Christ. your own fucking... 
emerge, the way they describe themselves is that they say that they don't receive funding from the Democratic Party, that they're a separate organization, that most of their funding comes from you know separate contributions. But you look at who's actually connected. It's all party leadership. Like the advisory board includes the current chair of the Burlington Dems, the vice chair of the Vermont Dems. It includes Linda Tarr Whelan, who was an ambassador to the UN Commission on the Status of Women during the Clinton administration and was a deputy assistant to the president, uh, to Jimmy Carter, uh, for the women's concerns in the White House. But even on their website, you look at their 2017-2018 Men for Emerge contributors. And like most of the founders are, are yeah. Congressman Peter Welsh, Senator Patrick Leahy, Peter Shumlin, uh, Weinberger, T.J. Donovan, uh, Faisal Gill, uh, former Speaker Chap Smith, uh, Jim Condos, uh, Howard Dean, uh, the husband of Sue Minter. Like, it's just like you look at this list and it's just like so very much going back to that NATSEC and, and the, the establishment connection. Like, that's what it is. I mean, it's a patronage engine. Emerge is actually very effective. 36 of their alumni are in public office. Three of them are Senate members, including the majority leader. Becca it's better Biden. than DSA. It is better than DSA. <laughs> uh, 13 House members including House Majority Leader Jill Krowinski, who is also the director of Emerge, and who also is probably going to become the next mm -hmm. uh, Speaker of the House. And then also uh, Sarah George, another girl oh power God. woman uh, who is the state's attorney. And so, like, this organization, Emerge, has been very effective. Like, Cunin's ability to, to protege and to, to reinforce this neoliberal hegemony has been very effective. And, and Bernie, I think one of Bernie's biggest flaws is that he never tried to do anything like mm. this you know the, the closest he has is the progressive party which he always for honestly good reason has always kept an arm's length away uh but there's nothing in a similar vein yeah. that bernie has done like yeah. even our revolution i mean the problem with bernie and the idea of bernie proteges is the conditions that produced bernie charles and i talk about this all the time he's really the last of the old social democrats in america and they never really had any power Mm -hmm. But he was the last one. And that constituency essentially doesn't exist anymore, both in America and in Europe, even less so in America. But, you know, you're not going to be you can't just train a new Bernie when you don't have the material conditions that produce a Bernie, a constituency that will vote for him. The closest you get really are, are is someone like Perry Freeman on the Burlington City Council representing the old North End. That's really the, the remnant. The, the vestigial remnant of the social democrat movement in America. And that's why you don't have that. But there's plenty of establishment liberals. That's a right constituency. Well, and it's a constituency in Vermont uh, in particular that's growing. Yes. There was a recent NPR article about how all these tech bros are moving to Vermont during uh, COVID and how Burlington is continuing to gentrify. And, and so, right, like just from a pure demographics number, it's, it's a losing battle. Uh, pit feed it. I, I, it's funny you say that because both Bernie and uh, Murray Bookchin they were Brooklyn Jews, socialist Brooklyn Jews. And I think Parenti, although not Jewish, also grew up in Brooklyn into a yeah. very, very left family. And a so, lot of right, powerful like... mustaches in uh, Vermont <laughs> radicalism. Why aren't we looking into that? We're going to look into the Harvard Kennedy School. I, I think as we as we move through this, um, another connection between Cunin and, and Molly Gray and Mayor Pete. Like, it's just amazing <laughs> how these knots just get so yes. fucking tied. Yeah. Uh, I love it. it. When I learned this, I, I did a lap. So <laughs> Madeline Cunin's grandson worked on Mayor Pete. He ran Mayor Pete's campaign in a few towns in New Hampshire, he won all of them. 
then uh, I believe he's he's one of the assistant directors of Molly's campaign. So, yep. you know, the thickest thieves, these people, and that's a huge takeaway. Thickest thieves. It is funny. I mean, this really has this. It really doesn't mean anything like more power to her on this one. But uh, I work with farmers and Molly's branding as like the farmer's daughter is such a like masterful. She's the children of an Olympian to conjure this image of like the dirt farming Yankee dairyman in your lieutenant governor campaign. That That's respect. I don't even I'm not even upset about that. It's funny you say that too, Pitfi, because like you, you look at Zuckerman. Who, Same thing. His whole identity is organic farmer. But because of his background, and to some degree because of the issues he's championed the most, he's seen as a trust fund gentleman farmer. Which he is. He's not seen as a salt of the earth sort of Vermont uh, going back Correct. generations. It, that is an interesting comparison because they're both going for essentially the same brand. And it's rejected from Zuckerman and embraced with Molly. I don't know which one you could say has a better claim to it actually being... True. Zuckerman, he's but, at least uh, an actual, like, he actually works on his farm. <laughs> I mean, I know plenty of farmers who will be like, I ain't farming. Maybe it's because I am a Vermonter and, like, automatically distrust him. Like, the ponytail and, and the farm thing fucking pisses me off. <laughs> so there, I, I don't know what it is, but in terms of Molly, the farm has been around for, for 40 years, so she did grow up and work on it. I don't see how you can say that Molly has a better claim than David. Better claim to what? To the, the farmer identity. But it's an interesting comparison because really, like, it's a, it's a diversified vegetable farm. David's operation is very similar, much more similar than either of them right. are to the average Vermont farm. Absolutely. And the fact yeah. that one of these people is able to cash in on that cultural kernel of the Yankee dirt farmer and the other is not. I'm not saying one or the other even has a better claim. It's just interesting how you're able to do that. I mean, I think... I think Molly's a better politician. One of the reasons, I'm going to say one of the reasons that she can cash in on that image is, well, she, she was born and raised in that, you know, and that's quaint and that's lovely. And you get the the pictures of her and Bob working in the fields when she was little. With, with Zuckerman, you get this idea that like, he is this idealistic outsider who came in to do the farm thing, like all the other fucking hippies who came to do that. You, I don't know. So I think that's part of where that comes from, where he doesn't, even with him, you know, delivering things from the farm share and all of those other things, like it just didn't fit the same way. So when, one of the things that, Molly Gray and Kunin and other girl bosses use, as we talked about, is their their identity. Uh, in this past election, Tim Ash questioned Molly Gray's credentials or even really ability to run for office because she had spent so much time outside of Vermont and didn't hadn't voted in a, really any elections in the past decade. That shit is hilarious. <laughs> there was a fascinating. Uh, intersection of this where uh, Zuckerman's wife, Rachel Nevitt, uh, on a private personal Facebook post, uh, talked about how she considered Molly Gray to be lying, manipulative, self-serving, power-hungry individual who has only ever bothered to vote in one election. And no, that was not the critical election of Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. And I don't think this ever should have made into the news. I think it's fucked up that any media organization picked it up. Uh, But Zuckerman crushed the response where he was just like, why the fuck are you talking to me about this? This is my wife. I'm a feminist. Like, I mean, the quote, the <laughs> quote is objectively hilarious. Yeah. And the whole thing with Molly not voting and the quote, like the point to take away from that is that like 
Molly, for a politician, is essentially apolitical. Yeah. Like, th- this isn't, like, an ideological movement. It, and I think that characterizes a lot of what we think of as, like, neoliberal or establishment politicians. That it's, like, doing the politics is a means and to an end. Like, there's no goalpost and there's no real... It's like, oh, well, I just didn't vote. That's not how you do politics. Which is true. <laughs> the end being... I mean, the the system functioning. Good management it's management as a virtue what you're describing pit feed you can see in molly's donors and in how her international work really played into some of her her donors during that campaign so gray raised four hundred thirty-three thousand. milne raised five hundred thousand, but three hundred twenty-eight thousand of that was his own or his family so, it yeah, was so mo- he didn't raise he it. didn't raise most <laughs> of that money and most of milne's uh Donors were almost entirely local business people and landlords and, and you know, Pizzagalli, uh, Vermont Realtors Association, Scott Boardman, Bruce Lisman, Bissonette. It, it was very much just like locals, local people. I would like to say, because I've been accused of being uh, a, a Milne supporter because of my uh, pointed criticism of Molly Gray, and, and I do just want to go on the record before we get further into Molly specifically, which I think we should, because I think Molly is unique even amongst this kind of the girl boss establishment. But Scott Milne is a boring loser. <laughs> like, he's a fucking nitwit. He has no chance of ever being in the national spotlight. Like, he's a stooge. He Even if he had won lieutenant governor, I still don't think he could win a governor's race. The guy's an absolute vtgop rump dum-dum and that's the the reason i'm much more interested in molly is because she's not even if she says nicer things she has ostensibly better positions i i think someone like molly is a much more dangerous person if you have even broadly left-wing or progressive politics. Yeah, and Milne run, has run multiple times. He's lost every time. He's self-funded. He loves spending, loves pissing his money. He should give yes. me some of that money. <laughs> I will lose a, a statewide political race for half of what he spends for himself to lose a statewide political race. So yeah, like he keeps losing. Gray, first time ever, runs for lieutenant governor and wins. And, and Gray donors, they were, you know, the high up local Dems. They all gave a lot of money to Gray. All right. Not a lot of high-up Republicans, I don't, I don't think, gave that much to Milne. I mean, granted, it, it looks bad to be a Republican in the state, so a lot of them are Republicans, even if they wouldn't say it. Well, there's a lot of Vermont Democrats who are national Republicans. Mm-hmm. The quick rundown of the CV. We know she grew up in Newbury, Vermont, on a large and very successful farm. She was a daughter to competitive skiers. Uh, her father was an Olympic cross-country skier in the 70s. And from there, she went to study at UVM. When she was at UVM, she interned for Pat Leahy. And took a class with Kiernan. Oh, that's right. She did take a class with Kiernan. And after she graduated, she worked on Peter Welch's campaign. Then she worked at the International Committee of the Red Cross. I think that's probably the first interest. Like, until this point, it's a pretty typical, like, ambitious, politically-minded UVM student. You know, I know a couple people have worked on Leahy campaigns. He, right. He runs he all the damn time. Yeah, you um, get a couple of campaigns. <laughs> Welch, Welch, every, it seems like every other year you Welsh, get a Welch campaign. Well, um, yeah, Welch runs all the time. Leahy is at least every six years. <laughs> but uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross, I, I think the, it starts a trend in Molly's career of being like really close to some of the messier parts 
of imperialism. Her job was essentially a tour guide kind of liaison for U.S. politicians at U.S. detainment centers around the world, uh, which, you know, like not known for being lovely vacation spots or particularly pleasant for, you know, your gap year job. Not terribly sinister, but I think the first time we see something noticeable in her CV and really leads right into the next stage of Molly's career. Yeah, so then she went to the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies, which is fascinating. It was founded by two senior League of Nations officials. The Graduate Institute maintains strong links with that international organization's successor, the United Nations, and many alumni have gone to work at UN agencies. So this institute was founded in 1927. It's the oldest school of international relations in continental Europe and was the world's first graduate institute dedicated solely to the study of international affairs. It was essentially completely funded through the Rockefeller Foundation. In the 50s, during the Cold War is when kind of a turn happened. Basically, they they were the ideological center of the Cold War mm-hmm. in Europe in a lot of ways. Uh, like, they did a lot. They, they released a six-volume compilation of documents on the Communist International. Um, like, this was really, uh, in many ways, built around studying uh, communism, uh, from a oppositional standpoint, that that's what this school did in the Cold War. They're a crazy group. It's a crazy organization, or, or, or what do you even call it? Uh, I mean, it's a school, notably the only place to release code degrees with the Harvard Kennedy School of Governance. Oh, I did not know yes, that. Yes, they're the only institution uh, that runs a joint degree program. I was like, why hasn't Charles said this yet? Yeah. <laughs> I've done no research on this school. I didn't think they were that important. Oh my God. The thing with the Graduate Institute is like, they don't have the kind of like, they're not as sexy as Harvard. You know, they don't have that like name appeal that the like these big American universities do. But like, this is where you really get plugged into the global neoliberal project. Like this is one of those places. And this was, if you're going through Molly's timeline chronologically, this is for me when, the alarm bells start ringing because this is a, this is a CV for someone with higher aspirations than state politics. Yeah, so if you look at notable alumni, like if you just Wikipedia, it's fascinating. Fascinating, honestly. Yeah, like multiple UN secretary generals. Well, well they get most of their funding from, like they're connected with the UN, right? But they're separate and they get most of their funding from the US. Yeah, after the Rockefeller Foundation stopped primarily funding, it seems to be a, with the establishment of the UN, it became essentially a UN project. And, and and that is interesting because, you know, we were talking before about the Kennedy School and the Kennedy School is well known for U.S. national politics. But this is a very global EU, UN. Yeah. Uh, this it's is deeply crazy. this is what neoliberalism is. This is what globalization is. Why do you think Molly chose that? I mean, she's an ambitious person. She's clearly ambitious and very capable. And I think she got a taste for this kind of work at the Committee for the Red Cross, you know, like. There was a there's a quote from her time there that said, you know, her her role was intended to help drive U.S. politicians understanding of the sometimes brutal conditions detainees face and consequently affect the U.S. foreign policies decisions. And that's a thread in a lot of what Molly does before she back to Vermont, kind of this idea that you can regulate brutality and you can regulate like imperialist violence. 
And I think if you're interested in something like that, the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies is for you. That is where you go to learn about regulating imperial brutality. It's for the slave drivers in training. Woo! It's for the people inspecting the slave drivers. I don't want to go on a tangent, but it makes me think of the um, Citations Needed podcast episode that I listened to about Samantha Powers who has a connection to Mayor Weinberger. They both went to college together and both majored together. And it, it, it really talks about that, how in Samantha Powers' uh, most recent book, I mean, maybe not that recent, but except from a few years ago, that's how she views her position. And, you know, she might get another position in, in the Biden administration, but it's so much about this, well, someone has to be in charge of droning or someone has to be in charge of, of making sure the slavers are... are yeah. kept in check so it should be a woman that's, exactly... that's my feminism and my humanitarianism i think we're gonna have to do a part there <laughs> i think i gotta i think i gotta bail and we're like just getting into the meat of it now i can't see us wrapping this up quickly is that does that kill you guys 